You're listening to We, we, we the Aether Podcast, within and without. Welcome. So, Matt, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are really going to appreciate some of the information you have to provide and what it is you're involved in. Uh, but just to kick things off, do you mind just briefly introducing yourself and, and what it is you're doing on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation, Adam. Uh, excited to speak with you today. Um, so I am involved uh, mostly with uh, teaching and writing as a uh, professor of philosophy and religion at a uh, school in San Francisco called uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, which kind of emerged out of the San Francisco Renaissance. And uh, <clears throat> we teach um, philosophy in, in my department in um, a way trying to kind of resurrect the ancient uh, sense of philosophy as a way of life, as a spiritual practice, and not just as uh, something merely academic. Um, And so for me, um, engaging with students and uh, with the academy, with academic philosophy, I kind of have a foot in in two worlds. Um, On the one hand, trying to engage with the academic discourse, but on the other hand, um, you know, having a foot in the other world of, um, you know, taking spirituality seriously, taking human experience in its um, full depth uh, seriously as a source of insight and and knowledge and even wisdom, which is uh, not often, though it's beginning to shift a bit, but still not often um, taken seriously, or or there's not much room made for that in uh, philosophy departments at most universities. So, um, we're kind of uh, straddling the edge of academia in in my department. And so um, a lot of my work is trying to shift that discourse. Um, in particular, though, maybe your listeners are familiar with uh, some of the philosophers that I think with. Um, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, a process philosopher, um, is one of them. He has a very organic um, evolutionary understanding of the universe and the human role within that universe. Uh, and also some of the German idealist and romantic philosophers like uh, Friedrich Schelling and um, <clears throat> Hegel and uh, the poet Novalis and so on. So those are some of the names uh, just to drop them in there in case people are familiar that I think with so you can orient me um, in this philosophical lineage. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess it's interesting. Is it, Do you find that philosophy is something that is helping bridge the gap in terms of spirituality when it comes to academia and, and universities? Like, is, is that sort of the doorway into it from your experience? It, it certainly can be. Um, you know, there's also religious studies, um, and I'm in a philosophy and religion department. And so in that context, there is more room um, to discuss spirituality and uh, an experientially grounded approach to the wisdom traditions and, and religion more generally, you know, mysticism, esotericism, and so on. Um, and so there's more opportunity to discuss these things uh, and to not just get blank stares in, yeah, the uh, disciplines within which I work, not only philosophy, but religious studies as well. So yeah, there's there's definitely a, a doorway Hmm. Yeah, that, that's pretty neat. I mean, I, I just know that other fields of study are just so completely, uh, so so far removed from that type of stuff that 
um, yeah, you would get those blank stares if you, you know, I, I went to, I went to school for uh, like business and, and marketing and things like that. So it was just like stuff like that was nothing, nowhere near anything that we, you know, we covered or discussed, but I have always had this growing interest in it. So, you know, thinking back, it's like, I feel like I, I would have had more fun doing something like philosophy or, um, you know, even did you sort of get into theology as well when it comes to the, the religious studies? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, both, you know, studying the history of theology, um, but also exploring um, what's called process theology. It's kind of one of my um, one of my home bases, which is a unique approach to understanding the nature of the divine uh, as something that we human beings participate in. Um, that is, you know, responsive to the way in which we engage with it. So it's not this more uh, traditional image of a distant um, creator deity that's just completely transcendent and has no relationship to um, human life. Uh, so, yeah, theology is definitely mm. part of what I do. So, do you think even at like on the mic on a micro scale that there is this sort of um overarching divinity or, or creativity or, or God energy? Like, is that, is that sort of a way you would, you would consider it that even for each individual and, and it's again, in a lot of old religious traditions, they, they see this outside of themselves and they see this as something that they, you know, um, even pray to. So do you think that this is something that's more um, intertwined and inter interconnected with, with every individual on, on a day-to-day -day basis? Is that your thought? I do. But I also think there's an important tension to hold because the danger of um, uh, identifying with the divine too quickly and too easily is that we mistake uh, the our own ego for the divine and, and become engaged in a kind of spiritual narcissism. And so there's, there's a wisdom in um, acknowledging the transcendence of the divine, but when that is upheld in opposition to or or in a exclusive way without any recognition of the imminence of the divine the divine within in other words the divine that is um you know as saint augustine said closer to ourselves than we are to ourselves um the divine that's discovered in in relationship with others as the very bond that allows us to connect with each other um, that sense of an imminent divine is is essential and often um, ignored by some of the uh, you know religious traditions because they're so afraid of that sort of mystical identification with the Godhead um, that they totally cut off any possibility of that. But I do think it's important to hold that that tension and not simply identify God with the self. Right, because I think um, that can be just as dangerous as fully um, a fully transcendent image of the of the divine. So, yeah, I try to hold that tension. Hmm. Yeah, it can, it can be a little bit of a trap as well. I can see why. Um, so, do you find that religion in itself, or as a whole, like and, and the different religions that are out there, sort of convolute things a little bit or muddy the water when it comes to having a deeper understanding of these things? Like, do you find that it just creates a lot of noise? Well, I mean, contemporary life uh, in the midst of, um, you know, the various forms of noisy technology and uh, social media and all these things are very distracting on their own. Um, we have 
such a um, information overload, not just with regard to understanding, um, you know, the present state of the world, like, you know, we're just inundated by um, the various emergencies all around the planet all the time. But we're also, um, I think, overwhelmed by just the capacity to uh, Google anything about history, Google any religion and, you know, read the Wikipedia page on, on whatever religion and think that gives us some understanding of this thousand multi-millennial uh, lineage of, of thought. Um, so no, I, I don't think of the religious traditions as noise. I think of them as deep wells that we can drink from. Um, but in order to you know, penetrate, penetrate through the, the sort of um, waves on the surface that can be distracting. I think it, it requires sustained study and um, not just reading a Wikipedia page, but, you know, potentially finding an elder in that tradition and, and learning from them or doing a lot of reading um, or both. Uh, but, you know, I think we're, our contemporary culture, um, particularly, you know, younger people who have grown up with social media, I think we're in, in real need of uh, looking again at these traditions to, to inherit uh, the wisdom that was built up over, you know, thousands of years. I don't think it's just noise, though um, plenty of contemporary religious believers who themselves haven't really looked at the depth of their own tradition, but just parrot what their preacher or pastor says and, you know, whatnot, that can be noise. Uh, but I think there's a depth below the surface that we can penetrate to. Mm. And you, But it takes such effort, it seems, for the everyday individual, as you said. I mean, it's just a quick two-minute Wikipedia search, and they think they've got it all figured out. And it's funny you mentioned Wikipedia because it's not the greatest source of information. Um, but it, 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 what's the approach, do you feel, and especially yourself as, as an educator, um, how do you feel the best way to get to someone, that, the younger generations, that the ones that have the, the 15 to 30-second um, attention span, you know, the TikTokers of the world, uh, how how to get through to those individuals to to really even just spark an interest initially so that they get start to get more of uh, of that longing for a deeper understanding of these things. Well, you know, you have to slow down enough to um, catch yourself regurgitating cliches or or slogans or um, engaging with the culture with, with society, with your peers in a way that remains at the level of, um, of, a, of, of sloganeering where you're trying to remain part of an in-group instead of really discovering, um, the truth. And, and so, you know, the first thing I would recommend is, uh, just to, to pause and, you know, maybe put your phone down, close your laptop and, um, reconnect with the, the sheer fact that you exist and you know maybe think about that for more than 10 or 15 seconds and just sit with it and it can be kind of scary if you never take the time to unplug for a second because it can almost seem like there's nothing there you start to lose uh the habitual uh track that your mind is on and but there's an opening if you if you stay with that um to the sheer fact of your existence. And I think, you know, philosophy, uh, as Aristotle said, begins in wonder. And I think 
sitting with, again, just the sheer fact that you exist without trying to describe it or explain it, just being with beingness <laughs> uh, can produce this sense of wonder, right? Like, why is there something rather than nothing, right? Very simple, basic, and profound question. And just sitting with it, I think, can um, shatter our uh, habitual conceptions of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing here. And it's, you know, a practice you can cultivate that continues to deepen. It might be boring initially because you feel like, oh, I'm missing some notifications on my Instagram or something. But that is all, I think, a distraction from um, the mystery that awaits us when we turn inward and contemplate our own existence. So um, seems simple enough. I know it's uh, easier said than done, and, and it can produce feelings of anxiety and, and fear when you do that, because you do start to lose, uh, you, you step off the conveyor belt of, you know, the, the chattering in your mind and the habitual patterns that guide you through life. And that can initially feel, um, you know, like you're, you're, hovering over an abyss and you don't know where it leads. Uh, but I think if you stick with it, that opens up into, um, you know, can, and it opens up in a way that can totally reorient you, uh, in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was about to say some people would feel, um, downright fearful, uh, when, when, when doing that, even just setting phone away and, um, setting up, turning off all that information. Some people, I, I could imagine I'm, I've met people over the years that just would not be capable of doing that. Um, I, I wonder what it is that, that drives that fear and that anxiety. Is, is it this just constant flow of information and, and these signals around us all the time? Like, what do you feel is, is it almost feels like a weight or like, a, like, a, like some sort of heaviness at, at times. And I say that because I'm in sort of technolo technological industry myself. Um, and it's wild how quick things move and how, how, how hard it is in some, in some ways to do what you just described, to just sort of step away from it and then just kind of be with being. Uh, and, you know, then you, when you step back into it, I'm, it's almost like I reemerge myself into it. And it's just, it's so wild. Like it's, it's chaotic. Um, so uh, what, what do you think is, is causing that sort of, is it just the amount of information that, and how, how it just keeps, compounding as time goes on, I get more and more and more. Well, I think to a large extent, we have created a digital environment that um, is designed to reflect and amplify me, right? And so we, we create our profiles and we uh, set, we, we, we choose our news sources and who we follow and, and it all reflects me, 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 me. And uh, that construct of the me, the ego, is um, is really no more than a um, an image. It's a, a mirage, you, you could even say. And the digital environments that we live in nowadays are um, again amplifying and um, um, you know empowering this this mirage, and eventually. <sighs> You know we're gonna grow older we're gonna get sick um maybe people around us who we love will die and one day we're gonna die and i think we're when we're trapped in this um 
hall of mirrors that's just reflecting me, me, me all the time. We never take, we never get the opportunity to consider our own mortality. Um, you know, philosophy, uh, as Socrates said, is learning to die. And so, you know, what's what's the source of the the anxiety that we feel? I think is this. Um, deeper recognition maybe just below the level of consciousness that uh that this identity that we cling to is not real that it's ephemeral that it's fragile and that um ultimately we all know one day we're going to die and we're terrified of that because um well it's it's mysterious it's unknown and it it challenges that small sense of identity that we're continually amplifying you know with uh social media with with um so much of the consumer culture that surrounds us and so um you know ultimately it's death anxiety i think that would be at the base of of that sense of heaviness that you're describing but the good news is um again i think when you turn inward inward and develop uh, a kind of contemplative attitude uh, and disposition toward life that that anxiety subsides and opens up into uh, different emotions, maybe even love, gratitude, wonder, as I mentioned. And so um, while it can initially seem terrifying um, to not continually amplify that sense of like me, 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 and uh, the, the, the narcissism um, that's rampant in our culture, I think if we give that spaciousness and emptiness and, and um, wonder a chance, uh, it's actually, there's nothing to be afraid of. And similarly with death, it's, it's a mystery. It's, it's, nobody knows what happens when we die, right? But as a mystery, like, the only reason we would fear it is because we're attached to this illusory sense of ego identity. And when we let go of that, um, there's really no reason to be afraid uh, it becomes more, um, you know, not necessarily exciting. I'm not suggesting people should be excited to die, but I think uh, it's something you can relate to more as a as an adventure, uh, as, um, you know, paradoxically, it's your birthright that you get to experience that passing through that threshold. It's something every human being has to do. There's no escape from it, despite what some transhumanists uh, are hoping. Um, and so, you know, better to embrace it while you're uh, still in good health and young enough to really cultivate uh, that sense of, of wonder uh, and, and contemplative depth. Um, but yeah, you know, to answer your question, I think it's the anxiety that we experience in the face of death. Mm. And, and do you feel that this sort of illusory um, experience let's call it do you feel that that's sort of predominantly placed as the primary from birth for an individual i mean th that's sort of my thought on it we, we were not really taught about any of anything outside of that you know in, in, in the education system for the most part unless you're going into something like philosophy or theology or religious studies but for the most part, it seems like everything else just ignores most of what you're describing. And it seems like everyone's driven towards this, you know, uh, this false idea of, of what reality truly is. And 
so I, I guess the question is, do you, do you feel that that's something that happens at an early age? And if so, why do you think that is? And, and a priority is placed on that versus sort of a deeper uh, inner experience, let's say, of the world instead of an outward experience? Yeah, I mean, to speak in um, really general terms about major shifts in in history uh, and to just focus on, um, you know, the modern West, I think in the medieval period, uh, maybe there was too much emphasis on what comes after this life. And then as modernity really got up and running, um, there was a total reversal. And now we're at the point where there's an overemphasis on just this life, um, you know, on the secular rather than the the sacred and the transcendent. And, and so, you know, ultimately we need a balance here, but I think in our contemporary culture, um, the default worldview is, you know, pretty much that your consciousness is uh, an excretion of your brain and um, that uh, when you die, you just disappear and, and you're gone forever. So best to, um, you know, uh, acquire and accumulate and enjoy uh, the material aspects of life while you're still alive. Um and, you know, so you, you get this worship of youth and uh, certain conceptions of beauty and of money and acquisition, none of which matters when you're on your deathbed, you know. And so I think that sense of false identity is just this default um, worldview and the psychology that goes along with it that comes from, you know, again, moving to this opposite extreme of, you know, what... Uh, say the medieval period that tended to do, which was focus on just the afterlife. Um, and so I would, I would say we need a more integral worldview that would balance these approaches and, and value this life and, 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 and the body and, um, you know, try to make the earth a, a better place. And, you know, it's not that we need to reject technology and, uh, modern conveniences um, and, or science and, and whatnot, but we also need to put it into a, a deeper context uh, and recognize that, you know, the human endeavor is a multi-generational project and it's not just about me. And uh, even if death is the end for everything I identify with in this life, the species continues and we're all a part of that. And so we do have some greater sense of identity beyond just, uh, you know, the 75 odd years that we get to be in this particular body. Mm, yeah. And, and you work with a lot of um, younger students and whatnot. Do you find that they are inquisitive to this stuff or do you, is it, I mean, obviously in, in if they're in that field of study, they would be, but um, are you noticing a rise in, in the number of uh, youth sort of interested in this? Well, I should say, I don't, teach too many undergraduates. Um, okay. A lot of my students are actually older than I am. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and so what I actually notice is older people who are mid or late career, often in the tech world, because, um, you know, I'm in San Francisco here, mm -hmm. who, you know, they've made enough money, they're financially secure, but they're not fulfilled in in their profession. And when they were younger, they had some interest or or passion in philosophy or spirituality or religion and they want to come back to graduate school to rediscover 
and and engage with those interests uh and so they leave their career and and they you know they come back to school so i actually see more older people you know who have already kind of succeeded in um in their professional lives who now want to do some personal work and some transpersonal work some spiritual cultivation and whatnot um so i can't speak as much at least in my own personal experience to what younger younger people are doing um but what you're saying about the older generation is already i mean that's pretty interesting in itself it's, it's a lot of a lot of people are are moving about their lives and they reach a certain point and, and say you know what i've come this far but what have I really accomplished? You know, like what have I really learned um, along the way? So it's interesting that, that you say that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't, so you don't work much with youth at all, or you don't. Uh... So I, I mean, once in a while, I do some um, guest teaching for high school students um, in the in the the Bay Area here um, in in Sacramento, uh, a couple hours from here, and. Um, you know, I can say that for, you know, 17, 18 year olds, uh, the philosophical dialogue is way more um, direct. The questions tend to be more um, simple, but profound because of their simplicity, you know, whereas in graduate school, you know, we're like reading Heidegger or, or, uh, whitehead or something and we're so conceptual and trying to refine our understanding of these obscure points that can be fun and interesting don't get me wrong but you know before you've read any philosophy and you're just again like rooted in that basic sense of curiosity and wonder about the nature of existence the questions that arise um from that baseline i think are the truly philosophical ones and so in some sense um it's refreshing to be in dialogue with teenagers about philosophy uh, who aren't schooled and weighed down by having studied this, you know, 2000 plus 2,500 year history of, of, of philosophy. Um, so it's important to, you know, remember that you don't need to be highly educated in the sense that you've studied all of these difficult books in order to philosophize in some ways you're actually um closer to the source <laughs> before you've read all the books mm -hmm. yeah that's like there's a lot of sayings where you're supposed to learn a lot and then just forget everything because after a certain point it doesn't really serve you you start to actually develop these like dogmas or these like conditional thinking patterns around that one thing mm -hmm. um I feel like I've gotten that way sometimes when I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I'll go through like this just spree of just back to back to back for months and then I just stop listening to everything and I'll just listen to like, you know, music or something for a little bit to take a break because it just gets a little bit overwhelming at times. It's like sometimes just it's even hard to retain a lot of that. I mean, you'd mentioned what 2,500 years. It's like, I mean, it's that's wild, you know, that's <laughs> like a lot to uh, to take in. Um, do you find yourself, uh, how, how long have you been in the, in the field? Uh, I mean, I've been teaching since 2016. Um, but, you know, st studying uh, philosophy as, as a student um, since high school, really. So um, since I was about 16, I think I got the itch. Um, 36 now, so that's 20, 
20 years. Okay. And do you find you're still like acquiring, acquiring information, learning new things at, the, at this time? At 20 oh, years there's always more information to acquire, um, and more, more knowledge, uh, more, more names and dates and ideas to learn. But, um, my basic drive and, uh, the sort of insight that got me interested in philosophy from the very beginning is, uh, still there and I often need to remind myself to contact it because as you were saying it can kind of get covered over mm-hmm. by all the information and the history and, and whatnot. Not, not that, that sense of wonder actually that you mentioned earlier right it, it sort of ties in right with that it's like do you still have that and do you have to work for it kind of thing the work is is putting to the side, the professional desire and, 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 you know, need to, um, be an expert in whatever specific subdiscipline of philosophy and, and to reconnect with that wonder. The wonder itself is, is pretty easy. It's, 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 uh, a childlike state of sort of innocent, um, um, playful being. Uh, without being concerned about uh, a colleague uh, destroying my argument, uh, you know, in a paper or, um, you know, whatever. It's it's just um, the joy of existence and the, uh, yeah, that, that feeling of, of wonder and being okay with, with not knowing. Um, I mean, in some sense, the more educated I became, um, moving through undergrad and mass and, and graduate school and getting my PhD, the more I knew I didn't know. Right. And so, uh, philosopher Nicholas of Cusa talked about learned ignorance. And I think the truly, uh, humble philosophers at least would admit this, that, um, you know, the more you learn, about the tradition and, and trying to study it from the inside out, not just as a collection of names and dates and ideas and so on, but to live into the the worldviews that are being articulated, to inhabit them from the inside out. You know, you come to discover that um, that the truth is multifaceted and probably infinite, and we can get these different perspectives on it, but that ultimately, the more we come to know, the more um, ignorant we realize we are. Right. And so part of getting a PhD in philosophy, I think, as I often tell my students, it's not that you come to know everything. It's that you um, become, you, you cultivate a kind of humility and you at least know where you might want to look to learn the things you don't know. You know, you kind of get a, a lay of the land and uh, know which parts of that map are to- totally blank, but at least, uh, again, with the amount of information at our fingertips nowadays, like nowadays, like the, we need to d- cultivate more the skill for filtering it, navigating the information superhighway, uh, rather than attempting to uh, digest all of it mm-hmm. at once. It almost sounds like you're saying it, it kind of gives a framework to other things, or at least like uh, allows sort of a base to, to to build from in terms of learning new things. Mm-hmm. Would, would that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's just really interesting. I mean, I, I just, I love it myself. And it's, it's funny because you mentioned these sort of tech people that go to school. It's like something that I feel like I would do. You know, it's just like I've done, I've been in tech for 20 something years and it's like, I'm just tired. It's at a certain point of being in it. What I do now actually is um, I do sensory deprivation. So every uh, like once a week I go into float tanks um, for like an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. And that has been my good way to completely detach from all of it. Because if I, if I didn't do stuff like that, then, or even just going for walks in nature really helps. Um, but uh, without that, I think I would just lose my mind. Like it's just, it's just totally crazy. And I could see why people would want to go back to school to sort of get that foundation, to get that initial uh, base. And then maybe they could reapproach their lives and what they've been doing, you know, from a new, from a new perspective. Um, hmm. So are, are you still like enthused with, with your day-to-day of, of the whole thing? Like you mentioned sort of you have to deal with sometimes like people will review your paper and things like that. Like do these things sort of bog you down or uh, how, how do you manage that and navigate that? It can be um, stressful to be an academic in a uh, context where, you know, your job sort of depends on publishing uh, continually and, it's a kind of perverse incentive. The system is set up with these perverse incentives um, because it's hard to to think deeply um, with deadlines uh, and with the requirement that you know what to seek promotion or whatever. You have to have this many articles published. It's like just publishing an article just for the sake of. Um, a line on your CV or something is, is not what philosophy is supposed to be about. I mean, if you have something to say, you should articulate it. If you don't have anything to say, you have no business pretending to, you know, contribute to this the the storehouse of philosophical um, inquiry. So that can be challenging. Um, but you know, again, I'm lucky to teach at a school that um, is sort of staffed by to some extent, academic refugees. Uh, So the faculty purposefully uh, sought out a school um, like CIIS because they were not um, happy with the way that academia as a profession uh, operates for the most part. And so, you know, I am afforded a bit more freedom to to teach what I want and to... um, you know, research and, and write about uh, what I'm passionate about. So in that sense, uh, I'm, I'm in a unique position among academic philosophers. But it's the students that come into the program who carry such uh, tremendous enthusiasm that really s- helps support me in the sense that it's contagious and um, if I do ever forget why I'm doing this, it doesn't take very long for, um, you know, the students to ask those questions or share their experience or offer some reflection about how grateful they are that, a you know, a program like, like this exists that, you know, it just helps, um, remind me and re-energize me. And it's such a privilege to be able to make a living engaging in this realm of ideas, exploring this realm of ideas with people. Um, and so I, I try not to, to ever um, forget that even when I have three dissertations to, 
to review and revise. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's important to, to remind myself what a privilege it is, you know, to do that for a living. Yeah. It's great that you have those people there to help remind you too, like, you know, your students, that's, um, it's like, if you're losing that spark, they'll help rekindle it right away. I'm sure, especially because you, you sort of experience the, that wonder and that enthusiasm through them, you know, it's, uh, it sounds like it would be amazing. Um, do you have any sort of, uh, meditation routine that you do or, or, you know, walking in nature or mindfulness routine, anything like that? Yeah. Walking for me is, um, probably my main spiritual practice. Um, I've never been good at sitting meditation, uh, just in an, it hurts my body. <laughs> um, and I sit enough already, just, I teach online and, you know, with writing and stuff. So walking for me, uh, sauntering as, as Thoreau called it, which, uh, is a, it's a, it's a holy or can be a holy, uh, contemplative, uh, activity that I think allows the mind to, to wander, um, in the sense, you know, that the mind, I think, is a fully embodied activity. It's it's not this separate essence that floats above the body. And so um, whether it's, it's yoga or for some people sitting meditation helps them achieve that sense of stillness. Uh, but for me, it's, yeah, it's walking. It could be anywhere. It could be walking down a neighborhood street. It could be hiking on a nature trail or it could be going to the beach walking on the sand, listening to the waves crash. Um, it, it activates and reattunes my mind to, uh, the rhythm of things. And, you know, whether that's just the rhythm of my own legs as I, as I walk, or it's the rhythm of the waves, if I'm at the ocean, um, being able to attune to the environment and to feel like any static energy or, or stuckness, um, in my thought patterns can sort of be massaged out just by virtue of the simple act of, of walking. So that's what does it for me. But, you know, as a philosopher, I think um, maybe for most people reading isn't a spiritual practice, but the kind of texts that I read um, sort of engender a contemplative mood, uh, require a contemplative mood to sort of ponder and deepen into what's being said philosophical writing is is not straightforward right so you read a sentence in um you know one of the great philosophical texts of history and it doesn't make any sense the first time you read it but you know there's something to it and so you the the struggle to understand uh can be a mind expanding uh exercise right and so um I would invite people to approach reading, which may seem more like a chore. Um, it depends on what you're reading, of course. But when you're when you're reading philosophy, when you're reading a spiritual text, I think that too can become a spiritually enriching activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, it makes sense. And I, and I love the way you describe walking and even just getting familiar with the motion or fluid movement of your legs moving. Like it's the simplest thing, you know, anyone can do it. Um, now, I initially came across your uh, discussion on Psychedelics Today podcast. So my next question would be, have you had any psychedelic experiences or do you dabble in uh, the use of any psychedelics at all? I mean, I personally do, but uh, I'm, I'm always curious for um, 
anyone else that does. Yeah, they've been some of the more important um, life-changing experiences that I've that I've had. Um, I think psychedelics probably. I'll, I'll say they they deeply enriched my appreciation for these basic philosophical questions and put me in touch uh, with a form of um, experiential understanding that that far surpasses what I can logically or or rationally comprehend or explain and um, you know basically taught me that you know, as much as I value the intellect and the ability to articulate um, and explain and, and describe with precision uh, the way the world works. Um, I've been profoundly humbled by these experiences that, you know, when you come back from them, when you come down, when you're done with the trip, uh, you just laugh at yourself in, in the attempt to describe what happened, <laughs> what mm -hmm. you, what you saw, what you felt, what you experienced. It's so far beyond language. And yet, um, you also, I mean, a lot of, experience uh, those experiences with psychedelics would would probably agree with me i mean i've i've found widespread agreement that the um the feeling of being compelled to describe it is intense and uh i think some very beautiful um accounts are are available and um it's not that we should resist the desire to try to describe it but i think what i've learned is just that um it's unless you're talking to someone else who has had such an experience, the descriptions you offer are just totally um, inadequate. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think psychedelics for our time in the in the the context of um, modern culture and society have a can have a very important spiritual um, role. Um, I don't think in and of themselves that they necessarily catalyze either individual or, or social transformation, but they can so much with psychedelics has to do with set and setting, right? What are your intentions going in? Uh, what sort of container have you created? What is your, your worldview? What sort of values do you hold? What are your deeper metaphysical beliefs and inclinations? Um, all, all of that goes into shaping um, the experience such that even with the same, you know, plant or, or, or chemical or, or fungal substance, you know, two different people in different situations with different backgrounds can have totally different experiences, right? So it's, uh, it's not just about the molecules that we're talking about. It's, it's the whole context within which they're ingested and, and within which that experience occurs. Mm hmm um, just because I know a lot of listeners of this podcast are, are interested and have tried psychedelics, would you mind even just describing one of the sort of transformative experiences that you would have had? Um, and, and when that was like, was it, have you tried them recently or is it something that you dabble with every now and then? Yeah, I would say I'm, you know, not a frequent, um, journeyer. Um, you know, I can describe my my first psychedelic experience with uh, psilocybin mushrooms when I was 19 years old. Um, I was an undergraduate 
just beginning to study philosophy at uh, my university, and um, I had been reading a lot of Terence McKenna, and um, became really fascinated by the history of, uh, you know, when 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 psilocybin and LSD first burst onto the scene in the '60s. I mean, the late '50s and '60s, and the Harvard psilocybin project with Tim Leary and and Richard Alpert, and um, <clears throat> so with all of that uh, understanding, I hadn't yet tried mushrooms until this experience. And I just took a, what McKenna called a heroic dose um, alone in my college dorm room. And so it's important to provide a little bit more context. I was at this point um, very identified with more um, of the Asian spiritual traditions, Buddhism, Taoism, Zen, reading a lot of like D.T. Suzuki and uh, Alan Watts and you know a lot of the the beat poets who were influenced by um, Eastern mysticism and so on. And I had really rejected the the traditions of my you know, Christianity and and Judaism. I my, I have a Jewish father and a, a, a Lutheran mother, and so I had rejected the biblical traditions and was really had turned east for my own spiritual path. But then, you know, the first time I, I ate mushrooms, I had an experience which I could only describe as um, an encounter with what's sometimes called the Logos or Christ. Um, again, totally unexpected. Uh, and it kind of opened me to the esoteric and mystical traditions in the West and that there's a different deeper stream or lineage um, that's, you know, closer to, um, you know, my, my own uh, cultural background. And so it allowed me to rediscover that. And it's, you know, it's hard to describe exactly what the experience was, but um, basically, it, yeah, I was communing with, with this being, and it was very um, much a um, articulate uh you know, I, I know I was saying before that it's it's so hard to describe these experiences, but this first mushroom experience is, you know, sometimes psilocybin can really activate your language abilities and capacities and playfulness with, with words. And indeed, that's what, what happened in this case. And so, you know, it was just me alone with my journal engaging in this conversation with, again, a being that um, I could only describe as a kind of Christ being and, or the Christ archetype, let's say, and just engaged in a dialogue with this being for an hour or two about the nature of self and what it really means to, to love oneself, others in the world. And, um, this very, very religious experience actually, I would say. And, um, you know, sort of set me on a, on a new path, not that I became a Christian or something, but um, definitely made me open again to the possibilities of, again, the sort of uh, Western esoteric traditions and interpretations of Christianity and, and Judaism and so on. And I still, you know, highly value um, the the Buddhist and, and, and Hindu and, you know, the Vedic traditions, um, but uh, it's, you know, I think made me a more whole uh, person in the sense that I can draw uh, appreciatively from the whole 
panoply of uh, religious uh, lineages that are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty big. That was your first time. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a pretty big dose. Um, but it is really great that you you journaled that process. I mean that. Um, and did you still have those that that conversation? Wow, that's great. Have you ever gone back and and read through it? Yes. Um, it does help me. You know. Uh, it does transport me back to the experience um, kind of like a little bit of a flashback experience, but also, you know, maybe others would have this experience too, when you're um, tripping and you describe the experience in a way that seems so profound at the time and you come back later and it's like, Oh, okay. Um, But you know, the, one of the aspects of the experience was I, I had a, um, poster in my room at the time of the the ohm um symbol uh and i started you know i have like 15 pages of me drawing that symbol over and over again and it was like morphing into into a sun and then an eye and then you know it it, the the meaning of this seed syllable like uh became so um potent in in morphing into these different um pictures that uh at you know again at the time while tripping it was just it was blowing my mind uh but afterwards it's like the the way that symbols shape our consciousness is is so mysterious because it it can if you're not in the right state of mind seem like just a bunch of scribbles on the page just a bunch of nonsense but you know so someone else who didn't have the experience i was having while uh, exploring, uh, and, and drawing this symbol in various ways, they would look at it and, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, it, it does, it's like the footprints of a, um, very transformative path of, of thought and experience that I was going through at the time. And so, yeah, it's nice to have that, that record though. It's very personal, right? So I wouldn't expect anyone else to read this and be like, wow, (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah no it is um I, i've i've journaled a few times but sometimes it is exactly what you're describing in that moment it's so profound and then you look back at it later you're like well okay <laughs> okay you know it's all right um yeah I've, I've actually um when i do the the sensory deprivation sessions i i use psilocybin mushrooms and usually i'm doing anywhere between like a two gram to like four gram. I, I don't, I don't go much higher than that. Um, obviously can't journal in there, but uh, the experiences are, are pretty profound. And I don't, I don't bother really trying to describe them to people for the reason that you've mentioned. It's almost, uh, you know, I, I usually just summarize it. Like I left my body. Let's just put it that way. I checked in on my body. It was good. It was in the tank and I just left again. Like there's, there's been a few of those. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it is tricky to to describe. Um, have you had any experiences with uh, like DMT or ayahuasca or anything like that? Yes. Um, yeah. So with you know DMT, it's so uh, powerful and intense and so short um, that it's you know it has its unique <laughs> character. And you know what I can share about that is. Um, one experience where I, uh, 
smoked the DMT twice in the span of about 20 or 30 minutes. And what was so striking to me the second time as, you know, I, I think I got maybe two hits in and as I started to blast off, my first thought was, I can't believe how quickly I forgot how intense this is. And so there's so much in the experience that um, you, we can't even recall. Uh, you know, it reminds me of like Dante and the Divine Comedy when he's he's approaching um, the Godhead. Uh, he says something like, you know, memory failed to follow me into this realm. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Um, but you know, it's, there's, there's definitely a sense of, um, leaving one's body, entering into higher dimensions where it's not just that you see geometrical forms and pretty patterns. It's like, no, as many people report, there are sentient beings there. Um, and you know, I had, I admit I had read a bit about other people's experiences. And so maybe I was primed in some sense, but there's the distinct feeling of, arriving in a dimension with these other beings who were doing important work of some kind and they're surprised to see me like how did he get here they're not i didn't feel any ire or anger or um anything like that just the sense of you're not you're not supposed to be here um and so i you know sometimes worry that this is almost like gate gate crashing in the sense that um we're using substances to catapult ourselves into realms where, you know, maybe um, it might be more ideal to, to have some preparation for, or, or understanding of where we're going and, and what we might be witnessing um, rather than just sort of um, crashing the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I do, I do worry about that, but, you know, I, I also think I, I, I don't want to, you know, discourage, curiosity and exploration um but uh just given the the sense that so many people have that these are that the universe is is populated by intelligence of of various kinds at various levels and that you know dmt and um maybe yeah 5-meo dmt and and uh even salvia to some degree though, you know, these, these really potent, um, substances that they're catapulting us so quickly into these other dimensions that we don't, we don't know what sort of activity we're disturbing by, by showing up in, the, in these places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm just wildly speculating here, but I, these are sort of the impressions I'm left with these very bizarre yeah, yeah. experiences. I, I wonder if that's why it's good to have shamans and, and guides in a lot of those cases, because they will sort of prime and prep and even help guide and through the music and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. They can definitely help someone that just, you know, pops up in another dimension, like, whoa, what's going on? And then the other <laughs> entities are like, uh, who are you? <laughs> you know, yeah. like it, it definitely would, I'm sure, help. Um, it is quite intense. I've, I've tried the, the 5-MEO um and it is a blasting off. That's the way to put it. I didn't do it twice. Um, I just did it the once and it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, I, I actually experienced like the, um, I went to like a, it was like a, uh, almost like a circus in a way. That's the way I would kind of describe it as very like sensory overload. Um, I even saw those like kind of gesture characters that some people describe, um, that was just like one level. And then I got past that level and I can't even really describe after that. It was, it was totally insane. 
Um, but for you to go back a second time and I could, I could, a friend of mine that was with me at the time, he went back and, and, and did the second time too. And, and I was just thinking, you know what, that was pretty intense the, the first time. So yeah, going back a second, I, it, it would probably be equally as, ten, as intense. Um, do you think that this is something that, um, I guess is becoming more, you mentioned that, that people sort of are getting aware of the fact that there's other beings, other entities and things like that in, in our universe or in sort of a multiverse type model. Do you feel that that's becoming more popular of, of, a, of a, among mainstream society that people are getting? Cause I find a lot of people are still like caught up on this, like UFO, like alien, like grays type of thing. Um, do you think people are thinking a little bit more deeply than that or, or more so? I mean, I've certainly had conversations about this with many people for whom the idea that what we, what the popular culture construes as um, sort of fleshy, f embodied aliens, whether the greys or whoever arriving in mm -hmm. metal spaceships from some other planet, that that might actually be a kind of um, uh, re reified image of what might be something more like interdimensional beings that um, don't need to travel through space in metal spaceships. Um, but, you know, I, I have no idea. This is um, very deep territory, but I do, I do know that there's a long history of speculation and, and contemplation about what we nowadays would call interdimensional beings in terms of, um, you know, angelic hierarchies, um, you know, the Sephiroth in, in Kabbalah and the emanations in, in Neoplatonism and the way that, you know, our level of existence, um, the physical world is, is just one layer of a much more richly textured reality. And, um, you know, I think as much as I, I value science and physics and biology, the kind of knowledge we can develop as um, human beings using our normal senses and our rational minds is um, profoundly limited. Uh, and we should, you know, remain open to the, the sources of insight that can come through, you know, imagination and, and intuition, which this psychedelic experience, I, I think, forces us to to rely more upon, because the rational mind just um, all you know all it can do is whimper and and, and mutter in in the face of of these sorts of experiences, uh, and it's I think you know for the most part the dominant culture nowadays, particularly intellectuals and academics, um, are not I don't think ready to accept that there are intelligences pervading the universe that are greater than the human intellect. Um, we like to think of ourselves as the smartest uh, organism, at least on this planet. And it might take uh, a bit more, um, a bit more time with, I think psychedelics are clearly starting to come back into um, the discussion, not just in the popular culture, but in, in academia, there's a lot of research going on, um, expanding beyond just the mental health applications into 
you know, there's, uh, I have a chapter in a book, philosophy and psychedelics. So philosophers are taking psychedelics seriously as a, um, a research tool. Um, you know, that's the way I see them, to be honest, it is a research tool. Um, and I see them as tools or technologies and yeah, so that makes total sense. Yeah. Though I, I should just caution, uh, treating them as tools makes it seem like we are the kind of the master engineer, um, that knows exactly what we're doing. And, uh, as soon as you take it, you'll find out that's not the case. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it comes to, that's why I like mushrooms in particular, because I find that it, 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 for me in particular, taps me into this ancient, like a wisdom that's been part of earth for way longer than we have. Um, and it, it totally, um, like it synergizes nicely with, with, with humans. And it, it, I find I have great experiences, but I just find that I'm very respectful of this like ancient wisdom that comes with um, the mushroom. And I, I haven't really tried LSD and things like that. Um, but I, I think it's because I'm so comfortable with that, that mushroom and that wisdom that it's like when I, when I take it, I, it's just so familiar to me. And it kind of helps me with the sense of forgetfulness that I have when I just go about the world like day to day. Um, I just feel like, yeah, that, that, I, did you have a similar experience when you, when you tried psilocybin that it was, I mean, you mentioned that this sort of, um, Christ-like archetype and I have had that as well, um, on the substance, but do you find that there's some wisdom there that it's been a part of the human, uh, experience for a while, but what are your thoughts on it? I do, I do experience that, um, distinctly with psilocybin mushrooms, um, in comparison to say LSD, um, which has, it's a much younger molecule. I mean, you, you could argue that, you know, the ergot fungus and the, um, alkaloids derived from that were part of ancient, ancient mystery rites. I mean, there's speculation about that, but LSD 25 synthesized in the lab in 1938 for the first time, right? It's, it's doesn't have as much of a morphic field, let's say, historically mm. built up around it, whereas psilocybin mushrooms have been used for perhaps 10,000, I mean, even even millions of years, potentially, mm-hmm. with, with our um, hominid ancestors, with with especially richly developed traditions of use in, in Central and, and South America. Um, though, you know, again, there's evidence for the use of um, psilocybin on multiple continents. And so you're, I think, yeah, we're tapping into this um, rich history when we when we use these um, uh, when we when we eat these mushrooms, and I tend to feel um, more like there's a teacher in the mushrooms that has, you know, yeah, a lesson for me. Um, I'm not as much in the driver's seat of the experience, and it it tends to be more um, of a, nowadays a kind of um, profound grief arises that's uh, difficult. It's not like, you know, an enjoyable experience, but it's deep and enriching and grounding and coming out of the experience on the other side. Just, I just feel renewed, you know, and, as opposed to say LSD, where the experience can feel more like um, 
again, not totally, but more like I'm, or at least uh, some self, maybe not my ego, but that my higher self is kind of more in the driver's seat and that my intentions are shaping it and that it's less um, clothed by a history and that there's less of a a lesson coming at me and more of my own um, will and intention and exploration that's kind of driving the experience right mm-hmm. um, mushrooms come with uh, a sort of message or a teaching like already there is is kind of how i would distinguish the the phenomenology of it the, the experiential aspect of it but mm-hmm. i don't know how widespread that is yeah and would you recommend for someone that hasn't really tried any psychedelics like for me i would always lean more towards the psilocybin but what what is your personal recommendation for anyone that's just come to you they're interested in philosophy they're interested in deeper understanding of things and they've never tried any psychedelics but they do have that interest as well i tend i you know i tend not to um recommend uh that people do psychedelics i think it's something you as an individual either feel called to or not if you do feel called to it despite i mean there's always risks right most of those risks can be mitigated again by paying attention to set and setting mm-hmm. um, make sure you're in the right state of mind um, there are uh, interactions with different pharmaceuticals you need to be aware of but um, also make sure you're in a safe environment i you know i don't think you always need a sitter um, I personally prefer to just be at home, um, you know, in the evening and with, with, I know a container that's going to be quiet. I won't be disturbed and so on, but I, I don't think psychedelics are for everyone. And I don't think anyone should feel pressured. Like, Oh, if I don't have this experience, I'm missing out and there's no, I'm more thinking like someone that specifically has that interest and then they mm-hmm. are seeking out that advice. Cause there is this stigma around it where people don't, they don't feel they can openly discuss it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why I like to openly discuss it. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah. obviously prefaced with what we've discussed earlier in the set and mm-hmm. setting and, and having a sort of, even having a guide or a shaman is great, but mm-hmm. someone that has considered all that now they're like, want to take the leap. Yeah. Um, that That's sort of what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's fair. And I, I think um, just, you know, going into it with reverence and, uh, you know, in general, I think I feel very strongly that, um, you know, the, the, the proper psychedelics, uh, you know, mushrooms, LSD, um, DMT, that this is a cognitive freedom issue ultimately. And that the, the fact that they're schedule one substances is just absurd. Um, people should have the freedom adults, uh, to explore their consciousness, um, without the state trying to interfere oh yeah i mean look look at cannabis even in canada i mean i'm in canada so for for years leading up to the legalization it was just a joke like technically it was illegal but no everyone ignored it like the cops ignored it like everyone ignored it because Mm -hmm. it it was this it was on track to becoming legalized in which case now it's totally legal and i see mushrooms going in that same direction so the fact that they've had schedule one classification is is kind of a joke really in a lot of ways i mean it's wild (laughs) i mean at least in if you look at the history in the united states um the reasons for that uh the status given to these substances is is political 
and mm-hmm. uh, often racist. I mean, with cannabis, certainly, I think. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's beginning to change, not quickly enough, but it is beginning to change. And so that there's the cognitive liberty aspect of it. But at the same time, um, you know, while I think adults should have the right to, to explore consciousness uh, and including altering their consciousness, um, I think it's important to bring a sense of reverence to the experience mm-hmm. and to be prepared to be knocked on your ass, like uh, to have your assumptions about who you are um, kind of ripped away from you and, and to realize that um, even the so-called bad trips are potentially healing, profoundly healing. And the reason they're bad is because it can be really painful to have false identities stripped away and to, to really be forced to face yourself. I mean, you can relive, um, memories, events, ways that you've treated people, uh, familial dynamics relationship to parents and siblings and stuff can come up and, and, um, the state of the world, uh, can all rush into your consciousness and be quite overwhelming and yeah feelings of grief like i was describing can really um yeah i love that i love that you mentioned the grief uh because i have experienced that and especially if i get that that's the world sort of feeling even in the tank um when i have left my body and i've been sort of in this earth realm sphere whatever you want to call it um i have felt that and and i've honestly i've like completely dipped from there i was like all right peace out and i just kept going um because it, it is so overwhelming and and i've talked with a lot of spiritual teachers that really emphasize on not for someone not to immerse themselves into that because that's just sort of this one experience that's sort of manifest over you know many many years on earth when it comes to war and famine and all these problems that we have and these separations that people create amongst themselves uh, it can be very overwhelming um, in terms of a psychedelic experience. I mean, that, that's that's from my take on it anyways. Um, it, how, how do you feel that sense of grief or, or sadness when, when entering in that space? Well, I mean, it can, it can tear you open and turn you inside out. And if you're able to, to hold the confrontation with, um, I mean, there's a German word for this, Weltschmerz, which is sort of like world weariness in translation. It's like um, just feeling the weight of history and um, the, the suffering of the world and the, the seeming hopelessness of finding a way to heal um, from, from, from this history. Uh, it, it can feel like you're drowning in it, but inevitably in the course of a journey, you know, whether through your own intention or through just the the rhythm and the, the process itself, you, you come out the other side of that. And there's always another side. There's always a light that balances the dark. And often uh, the periods of grief in a journey will subside and open up into um, gratitude. Uh, and you see the other side of life and history and all the ways that human beings cooperate uh, and uh, through association um, and collaboration are able to bring about such tremendously uh, exciting and amazing 
things and accomplishments. And so there's always another side to it. Um, and so it's, you know, important to, to recognize and bring about that balance again, either through your own intention or just in trusting the process. I would say don't resist the, these darker, um, emotions that can come up in the journey that can make it much worse. Um, go with it and just trust that, you know, you, you, you will come out the other side. Um, and you can feel like you're losing your mind and like you're going crazy when, when you've, if, especially if you resist. And, um, you know, I've heard many people describe how like they had this point during a journey where they, they thought they might just be like this forever. Like they broke themselves or something. Um, it's not true. <laughs> you will move through that and you will be, um, whole again, the, you know, the shamanic dismemberment is a process you go through and you will reassemble on the other side. Um, and so it's, it's just really important to trust the process and, um, you know, allow the full spectrum of human experience to, to unfold. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's about as, as much advice as, that's that great advice. Yeah. Great advice. Do you feel that, that that's why that Christ archetype is so powerful in, in, in helping with that transmutational process where you're, you're, you're moving towards gratitude, moving towards love and, and, and joy and these, these things. I mean, totally. I mean, for me, one of the meanings of that archetype is that despite death and suffering, love persists and that if you can face death with love your own death the death of others and just uh hold fast to this transpersonal form of of love unconditional love um that uh that death can be if not overcome in the literal sense that you're immortal, but rather uh, death can be perceived as a doorway um, into rebirth. And that in that rebirth, uh, the new form of identity that, that one can um, step into is not immune to suffering, but takes a different attitude to it and sees it as, again, like part of this uh, balance of light and dark in the universe that that drives the whole creative process um, and so yeah I mean reconciling suffering um, and death with the fact that life in its human form but in any form has continued for billions of years on this planet I think is it's an important experiential insight you can intellectually reflect upon it forever but you have to really experience like why has life persisted despite death and suffering and pain and even life has complexified for billions of years such that it's capable it's more sensitive and so capable of even greater suffering um you know like i think a human being can suffer way more than a jellyfish mm -hmm. why would life have pursued greater sensitivity you know if if it was all just this one-sided pain and, and suffering and um and death and so you know i think 
experience like psychedelics can provide us with an experiential insight into the cycle of life and death and rebirth and to just love the process um despite what it may appear to be if we only take a one-sided perspective on it yeah i i, I really appreciate that you you come at this from a perspective of someone that's in, engaged in philosophy as well because it does um give a very unique angle to it um because a lot of the what, what the, the psychedelic journey you're describing is almost like the philosophical journey as well i mean they're they're so they seem like intertwined um yeah that's just that's great that uh, you, that you've uh, that you've had that experience like from a young age and that you, you've carried it with you it's it's really great um i don't i don't want to take too much more of your time i want to be a bit mindful of your time but um did you have uh, any sort of closing thoughts for anyone uh, listening to this uh, on, on anything we've discussed? I mean, it, it, a little bit of it was kind of doom and gloom, but we came out of it lovely, I would say. Um, yeah, any, any closing thoughts for any, anyone listening? Um, I would say just uh, seek out those who you can have these types of conversations with and challenge yourself to uh you know look beyond the edges of consensus reality i think we live in a a culture that is um predominantly driven by by fear and uh kind of narcissistic selfishness and we all succumb to this in very in to varying degrees because we're all shaped by this culture but you know for me philosophy uh and the spiritual path is uh about you know not being afraid to look beyond the uh what's considered to be normal and uh acceptable in our dominant culture and to find the others who are willing to go there with you because um it's really hard to do it alone and so um that's why i enjoy conversations like this just to be able to reflect with one another and share experience and compare notes and uh you know continue to go deeper and if enough of us can engage in this way then that dominant culture can be transformed and and healed and and deepened and you know that's that's what i live for as a as an educator that's that's my uh purpose and calling in life but um you don't have to be uh, teacher, you don't have to be a philosopher, um, at least in the sense of, you know, a professional, uh, we can all be philosophers just by virtue of being human and questioning the nature of our existence. Um, but I think the, the human condition, um, is such that, you know, we're supposed to be examining, we're supposed to be questioning, we're supposed to be wondering. And if we don't make space to do that, if we don't cultivate relationships with others who can help us uh, in dialogue explore that that wonder then i don't think we're living to the full capacity uh, of our of our humanness of our humanity so mm -hmm. that's very well said and, and thank you for for having this conversation with me because it's it's refreshing when i get to have these because my my day-to-day -day does not include this type of stuff <laughs> you know i mean I, business and technology as i said is not um yeah we're, we're looking at like mobile apps and marketing campaigns and, and statistics and analytics and blah 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 so 
it is very great to have these conversations and um, they are few and far between, I find. But when we, we do get them out there, when we do share them, um, I, the feedback is immense. Uh, you know, people reach out and they say thank you. Um, so on that note, do you, do you have any socials people can reach you at? All of your information will be in the episode description. But uh, if you want to just mention it, um, you know, if people want to shoot you a message or a comment or anything. Yeah, um, I've been uh, I've been on YouTube for a long time. Footnotes to Plato uh, is my YouTube channel. I do a lot of philosophy dialogues. I'm doing a reading group right now that's uh, recorded. If people want to check that out, and then my blog is the same thing. Footnotes numeral to Plato.com. So yeah, that's a great find username, me. by the way. That's really good. Yeah, thanks. It caught caught my eye when I saw it. I was like, that's really nice. Um, all right. Well, thank you again. And um, yeah, my pleasure, Adam. Thanks for having me. Thanks.